Shabbat Shalom, everybody! Tonight begins the Feast of Trumpets for the year 5784. As you all know, they don't have numbers in Biblical Hebrew 1, 2, 3, 4, written like we write numbers. Every letter is also a number. So an Aleph is 1, a Bait is 2, a Gimel is 3, a Dalit is 4. So 5784, the 4 being a Dalit, what does the letter Dalit stand for? Stands for the door, as in the door to heaven opening. The Lord told us we may not know the day or the hour that he's coming, but we'll know when it's near, even at the door. And that's really where I want to start tonight. All week long I've been thinking, normally I have just one service to teach all there is to know about the Feast of Trumpets. This year, I get two. So do I talk at half speed? Or do I cover more material? So I thought, let's cover more material. So I want to start with the idea that somebody brought to me in the last two weeks when he said... How do we even know that the Bible is true? Have you ever thought about it? How many of you heard from the time you were a child that the Bible is the word of God and you just accepted it for that? A lot of us probably have and did. But is there any kind of proof in the scripture that it is the word of God? And the answer to that is absolutely. You have what are called Bible codes throughout it. For example, they say that if you start in the book of Genesis with the first letter Tav and count every 50th letter from Genesis 1 to the end of Genesis, every 50th letter spells Torah. Torah, 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 Torah. And if you go to the book of Exodus and go every 50th letter, it spells Torah, 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 Torah. And if you take the last two books of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, they start at the back and go toward the front, spelling Torah, 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 all the way through. So the two before Leviticus and the two after Leviticus just point Torah, 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 all the way back to it. Because in Leviticus chapter 23 is the heart of the Torah, and that are the feasts and the festivals that teach the first and second coming of Messiah. And that's cool. That's really cool because I tell you what, I couldn't sit down with a pencil and a piece of paper and write 500 pages and have it do that. But God can. But I'm going to show you even more. Turn to the book of Esther. To the book of Esther. On the issue of can we even believe our Bible? Go to Esther chapter 9. Esther chapter 9, you there? Not quite, I still hear pages turning. So I got a couple questions out there, let me go see. Um, are we there, Esther 9? Verse 5. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, 
Parshandatha. See that name? Make a note in your notes or underline in your Bible that TH toward the end. We're now on verse 7. Verse 7. Do you see also Parshandatha? That TH near the end. Make note of that. Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta. Make a note of the SH in Parmashta in verse 9. Erisai, Eridai, and Vajazatha. Make note of the Z in Vajazatha. Those three letters in Hebrew, the Sheen, the Tav, and the Zayin, are written in different size letters in a Torah scroll. If you've got a kosher Torah scroll, all the way back to the time of Moses and the eras when they were being written, those three letters are smaller than the others. Why? Did they get a hand cramp? No. God put a code in the Bible there. The first letter you come across is Tav. That has a letter value of 400. Put that in your notes. 400. 400. The next letter that was smaller is a Sheen. That has a value of 300. Which one Sheen? The SH. The one that says Parmashta. That SH sound. The third one from Vejazatha, that Z sound, is the Zayin. It has a value of 7. Now my math majors, if you put 400 plus 300 plus 7, what do you get? 707. In the Bible, dates don't have centuries, just the years. The year 5707 is what that sums up to. And let's read on a little more. To find out why that's important. Verse 10. The ten sons of Haman. They go boo. The son of Hamadatha. The enemy of the Jews. They killed. So those ten sons of Haman. Boo. Are dead. But they did not lay hand on the plunder. On that day. The number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel. Was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther. The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who were in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on the gallows. Understand those ten sons are dead. And tomorrow, the ten sons of Haman are to be hung on the gallows. That word tomorrow is what in Hebrew? Machar. M-A-C-H-A-R. Machar, which means in a time to come. In a time to come. So on Hoshana Rabbah, which is part of the Feast of Tabernacles, in the year 5707 in the Jewish calendar, which is the year 1946 in our calendar, 
Turns out to be October 16th, 1946. There were 11 Nazi war criminals to be hung on a gallows. How many of Haman's sons were hung on a gallows? Ten. Oh, Hermann Goering committed suicide by cyanide. So on that day, October 16th, 1946, 10 Nazi war criminals were hung on the gallows as a result of the war crimes tribunal. How did God know? 3,000 years ago, give or take, that those 10 war criminals would not be shot by a firing squad like normal, but would be hung on the gallows on that particular day. Hmm. Yes, sir. Do you think God here, like prophetically speaking, was calling them sons of Haman because of their actions, like the the Nazi war criminals? Yeah. What did Haman want to do? Wipe out all the Jewish people. What did the Nazis want to do? Wipe out all the Jewish people. That makes them sons of Haman. Yeah. So like God in the book of Isaiah refers to Jerusalem as Sodom and Gomorrah because they're acting like Sodom and Gomorrah. So these Nazi war criminals were acting like the sons of Haman. So it's not necessarily that they were descendants of Haman. They were just no. acting in the spirit of Haman. Right. They were not necessarily descendants of Haman, but they were acting in the spirit with the desire to what? Eliminate all the Jewish people. And you all go, well, that's interesting, but isn't there more? Well, of course there's more. Turn to the book of Leviticus. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 25. Who remembers what year Abraham was born from creation? The year 1948 from creation. What year was the nation of Israel reconstituted as a nation? 1948 in our calendar. (coughs) People will go, well, yeah, but that is just a coincidence. No, it's not. If you'll turn to Leviticus, please, to chapter 25. Let's start in, oh, around verse 9. You shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. You shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you and each of you shall return to his possession and each of you shall return to his family. So it's talking about the return of Israel back to the land, back to their original homeland, back to their original possession, right? That word return is the Hebrew word tashvu. Spell it T-A-S-H-V-U. Tashvu. That first letter, Tav, that makes the T sound has the value of 400. The next letter, sheen, which makes the SH sound, is the number 300. Now, this is not mysticism or anything. That's literally what the numbers are in the Hebrew alphabet. The next letter that makes the V sound is actually a bait, and it's got a value of 2. The last letter that makes the U sound is the Vav, 
which has a value of 6. So if you add 400 plus 300 plus 2 plus 6, you get 708. Add the century to it, 5708 is the year 1948 in our calendar. Who wrote Leviticus? Moses did. What, 3,500 years ago? And he told us Israel would come back to the land in the year 1948. Now ask me again, do I think God really wrote the scriptures? Is this the word of God? It most certainly is. Now these are not the only clues that God gave us. So the psalm that describes the events of 1948 is Psalm 48. So let's go to Psalm 48. Whoops, I got a question out there. What was the last verse, please? That was Leviticus chapter 25. The last verse was 10. The last word of that verse in Hebrew is Tashuvu. Shall return. How do you spell the word tomorrow? Machar, M-A-C-H-A-R. Yep, I see. Margo put it out there. Okay. So that word literally means from after. Yeah, literally means from after. It means in the future. Yeah. Exactly. Now, if this is boring to anybody, let me know. But I thought it was kind of cool. So in 1948, Israel becomes a nation again. Let's look at what Psalm 48 says. Starting in verse 12. Walk about Zion, Jerusalem. Go all around her. Count her towers. The word tower stands for military tower. So it means Israel is back in control of the land. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces that you may tell it to the generation following. Do you see that? Hebrew does not say to the generation following. The Hebrew says, Lador acharon, to the last generation. The last generation. Remember Messiah talking about the generation that sees the fig tree blossom is the last generation. The fig tree blossoming is the same as Israel becoming a nation. So it takes us back to 1948. So in 1948 begins the last generation. If you don't want to take my word for it, and I never want you to, I want you to say prove it. Go to Isaiah chapter 48, where we see the same word that was translated following in Psalm 48 that I just had you correct to last. Isaiah 48, verse 12. <clears throat> to a verse that you're all very familiar with. And one that occurs in Revelation 22, right? Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. That's the same word they translated following. In Psalm 48. What does it mean? It means the last generation began in 1948. And then in Psalm 90, Moses tells us 
how long that last generation is. Psalm, Psalm 990. Verse 10. Psalm 90, verse 10. The days of our lives are 70 years. Uh-oh. What's 70 years from 1948? 2018, we've been left behind. No, let's keep reading. And if by reason of strength, there are 80 years. So that's a 10-year window from 2018 to 2028. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, which means it doesn't go the full ten years. And we fly away. What does fly away sound like? Sounds a little like a rapture to me too, huh? So between 2018 and 2028, but cut short, and we fly away. What year are we in today? 2023, right smack dab in the middle. Interesting. So do I think the Bible is accurate? Oh, yes, I do. But let's go a step farther. Grab your Eschatology 101 sheet. The top section quotes from Matthew 121. And she shall bring forth the son who shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. The word for me is because. Growing up, I never understood the verse. When it says, she'll bring forth the son, you shall call his name Jesus, for because he will save his people from their sins. Until I learned that Yeshua into Greek is Jesus, in English is Jesus. So the angel really said, you shall bring forth the son, you shall call his name Yeshua, salvation, for he shall save his people from their sins. The next section shows the 7,000 years from creation until the new heavens and the new earth. 2,000 years called tohu, which means desolation. The second set of 2,000 years called Torah, the years of Torah. The third set of 2,000 years, the years of Messiah. That's what Mashiach is, is Hebrew for Messiah. Then after 6,000 years <coughs> comes the Ati Lavo, which is the Messianic kingdom. People go, isn't it 5784? Well, it's what the calendar says, but if you remember, there was more than 200 years that Israel did not count which puts us right up to the year 2000, but we can't say exactly if it's the end of 6,000 or not, but we are really, really close. I put the scripture references, but the next section is the one I want to talk about today. Normally when we come together, I say, put up four fingers on your left hand. Go ahead, do it. Three fingers on your right. And we say that the spring festivals are represented by the four fingers on your left hand. The fall festivals, the three that are on the right hand. And that the first one teaches the death of Messiah, the second the burial, the third the resurrection, the fourth the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? 
But did we ever prove it? Let's prove it. Let's put the verses with it. So was Messiah crucified on Passover, the 14th day of the first month at 3 o'clock? Let's go look. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. <clears throat> Verse 17. This is the first of the seven appointed times of Leviticus chapter 23 that God fulfilled. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. It says, now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, everybody says, wait, 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 Wayne. That's the 15th. Well, look at your Bibles and see all those words in italics. They're not there. So strike those out. And it now says on the first of unleavened. Which is different from the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On what day do you clean all the leaven out of the houses? You do that before the feast even starts. But the first day where you have no leaven, eat no leaven, is the 14th. That's why some people call the entire period from the 14th on Passover. Some call it all unleavened bread. Some divide the first day as Passover and the next seven is unleavened bread. But <clears throat> we're going to show that this is actually talking about the 14th day of Nisan, which is called Passover. So the disciples came to Yeshua saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Do you see that word prepare? There's another term for the 14th day of that first month is called preparation day. Because that's the day you prepare the lamb, you prepare the meal for the Seder that's eaten on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the translators were trying to help us, but they caused confusion when they added in those words in italics. And he said, go into the city <coughs> to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Yeshua directed them and they prepared the Passover. It's preparation day. <laughs> Let's go to John chapter 19. Keep a finger in Matthew because we're coming back to Matthew. John chapter 19, verse 31. John chapter 19, verse 31. Therefore, are we there? Therefore, because it was the preparation day. Can I ask, what's the therefore for? What happens in the verse before? He just died. So Messiah is dead. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, and which day is Messiah dead? The 14th, the preparation day. That the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. Which Sabbath? Open parent, for that Sabbath was a high day. The high Sabbath is the 15th day of the first month, which is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Messiah died on Thursday the 14th of Nisan, 
at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So it goes on in verse 1 and say, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, what we've shown so far is that he dies on Thursday, on Passover, the 14th. But for the time, we have to go back to Matthew. For the young lady who just came in, you probably don't have a copy of the Eschatology 101 paper. So let me give you one. We're talking about this section right here. So for Passover, the 14th day of the first month, we've looked at Matthew 26, 17, and John chapter 19, verse 31. And now we're going back to Matthew chapter 27 to see what hour Messiah died. What hour? Matthew chapter 27, start in verse 45. Messiah was nailed to the tree at 9 a.m. And verse 45 says, now from the sixth hour, what hour is that? Hour time, that's noon, until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. There was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Yeshua cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why did he cry that out? Because Psalm 22, verse 1 says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. God has not turned his back on Messiah. Messiah is God. He can't turn his back on himself. But he's telling them, to think back to Psalm 22. Up to this point, the disciples have not been able to understand that he was supposed to die. So as he's hanging on the cross, getting ready to give up his spirit, he tells them essentially, hey guys, go read Psalm 22. That David prophesied a thousand years before Messiah's birth that he would die by crucifixion. So verse 47 said, some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Why would they think that? Because Eli is short for Elijah and they didn't know what Psalm 22 said. So some of them were not as educated as some of the others. Meaning one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine <coughs> and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. But he won't drink it. Why? At the Last Supper, he said, I won't drink wine again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. So he will not break his word, even though he's dying of thirst. But this was prophesied in Psalm 69, 21. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Yeshua cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So what hour is this? 3 p.m. What time did they have they killed the lamb at the temple every year for 1,500 years? 3 p.m. on the 14th day of the first month. Rehearsing, practicing the death of Messiah. Now, on your handout, Eschatology 101, look at number two. 
Unleavened bread begins the 15th day of the first month, that is three hours after Messiah dies. Let's go back to John 19. John 19. We just read verse 31. Let's look at it again because it's important. In verse 30, Messiah dies. This connects the Matthew 27 with the John 19. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that's the 14th of Nisan, the day we call Passover, that the body should not remain in the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. So it's not the weekly Sabbath, it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a high Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Yeshua and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Was there a prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken? And it was fulfilled. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. If you ask a physician what's the significance of that, they will tell you that the blood and the water separate at the time of death. So it shows that he really is dead. Verse 35, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. John says, I was there, I saw it. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, quote, not one of his bones shall be broken, unquote. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Yeshua, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Yeshua. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Yeshua. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Yeshua by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Yeshua and bound it in strips of linen. In what? Strips of linen. What's the shrouded terrain? One solid sheet. So does the shrouded terrain match the biblical account? It does not. With the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden... A garden in biblical terms is not what you and I think of as a garden, but it's a grove of trees. In this case, olive trees. There's an olive press. That's why it's called Gethsemane. And in the garden, a new tomb which no one had been laid. So there they laid Yeshua because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was near. So they get him to the grave site before the sun goes down. They get his body in the grave. They push the stone over it. And then they go, and they have to be gone by sundown, because that begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days, it teaches unleavened bread. Yes, Daniel? Um, just something I thought was interesting in verse 36. In verse 36? The, the prophecy where it says, not this bones shall be broken. If you look at the references, well, my references down here, one of them is Exodus 12. Right. Now, one of his bones shall be broken. The reference is Exodus 12, which is the first Passover in Egypt. So it's a, a commandment that the bone of the Passover lamb that sacrificed cannot be broken. And God is saying this was a picture of Messiah, right? Yep. yep. 
absolutely true. So for seven days, <clears throat> Israel and all believers will eat unleavened bread. The bread is unleavened because it's missing leaven. Everybody go, duh. Leaven is a picture of sin. It teaches us that Messiah was sinless. Always sinless from the beginning to the end. He didn't die for any sin of his own. He died for my sins and for your sins. And then <clears throat> number three on your sheet says first fruits is the day after the Sabbath during the week of unleavened bread. Passover is the 14th. Unleavened bread begins on the 15th. But first fruits doesn't have a numbered day, but a day of the week. It is the day after the Sabbath during the week of unleavened bread. And that is when Messiah was resurrected. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28 verse 1. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Are we there? Let's read it in Greek. No, let's read it in English first. Verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, came to see the tomb. The reason I say we have to look at the Greek is the English isn't quite accurate. English says, no, after the Sabbath, singular, but the Greek is after the Sabbath, plural. <clears throat> it reads, "Obse de Sabaton, after the Sabbath, plural. You can understand why the publishers and translators put Sabbath singular because they couldn't figure out how there could be more than one Sabbath. But Messiah died on Thursday. Friday was the high Sabbath. Saturday was the weekly Sabbath. They come the day after the Sabbath, which is the day that you and I would call Sunday. In biblical terms, it's simply the first day of the week. That's the day Messiah arose. In the year that Messiah died... That was the 17th day of the first month. So he died on the 14th, was buried just before the start of the 15th, and he arose on the 17th. It won't be the 17th every year because the calendars don't correspond exactly the same way every year. So what's the significance that it was the 17th day of the first month when Messiah arose? Well, that's the day that Noah's Ark sat down on Mount Ararat. And Noah and his family were delivered from God's judgment of the flood. It's the day that Israel came through the Red Sea as God parted it and they were delivered from the judgment of Pharaoh. It's the same day that Haman was hung at his own gallows in the book of Esther and the children of Israel were freed from the death sentence of Haman. It's the same day that Messiah arose from the grave. <clears throat> so put up your forefingers on your left hand. Messiah died at Passover, was buried on leavened bread, and arose at first fruits. Notice they're fulfilled in order. 
isn't it nice that he died before he was buried and was buried before he was resurrected? But notice God fulfills them in order. I'm building to a point. You probably guessed that. The fourth, well, before we go to the fourth thing, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What does all this have to do with the Feast of Trumpets? It's coming. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, start in verse 20. The entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is about resurrection. And that is the theme of the Feast of Trumpets, is resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, it says, But now Messiah is risen from the dead. Why is Paul teaching this? Doesn't everybody know Messiah rose from the dead? The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. And there are Sadducees who are now believers in Messiah. And Paul's going, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How can you still not believe in the resurrection when you know Messiah was raised from the dead. So he's trying to get him to stop and go, well, maybe not everything we were taught as children is true. Hmm. So verse 20, but now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of the resurrection. Let's read a few more verses. For since by man, that's Adam, came death, by man, that's Yeshua, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive. And they do mean all. But each one in his own order, Messiah the firstfruits, afterward those who are Messiahs at his coming. Okay, back to verse 20. Verse 20 sets up an interesting principle that so many people overlook. Messiah is not just the first fruits because he arose on the feast of first fruits, but he's the first fruits of the what? Of the resurrection. Go back to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23 is where God lays all of this out, all the dates of Messiah's first coming and his second coming are in Leviticus 23 that we will go over in more detail tomorrow. Let's start in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. First fruits is not a stalk, it's a sheaf, which is why in Matthew 27, there were so many others that were raised as Messiah was raised when he came out of the grave. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. That's why first fruits is always on the first day of the week. Verse 15 says, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. The day after the Sabbath is first fruits. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be counted. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. 
So that fourth number on your Eschatology 101 page is the Feast of Weeks, also called Shavuot, which is Hebrew for weeks, and Pentecost, which is 50 days after first fruits. But turn the page to Leviticus 23, verse 22. In between the Feast of Weeks, that ends the spring festivals, comes a harvest period in verse 22. Which is something a lot of people don't understand. In the middle of all these feasts and festivals, God puts a sentence in here about the harvest of the crops in Israel. It's because Messiah is the first fruits of the resurrection. So in verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleanings from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And then we begin the fall festivals. So the harvest in Israel was in three parts, which is why verse 22 is there. You have first the first fruits, then you have the main harvest, and then you have the gleanings. And the fall festivals teach the main harvest and the gleanings. The first fruits was in the spring, the Messiah's first coming. But the main harvest and the gleanings are in the fall at the second coming. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 verse 1. We looked at the verses on Messiah's death. We looked at the verses on his burial. We looked at the verses on his resurrection. And now let's look at the verses on the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot or Pentecost. They're all the same thing. Feast of Weeks is English. Shavuot's Hebrew. Pentecost is Greek. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. I have a question out there and go to a meeting. Let me check it. Pat Collette says, what about Lazarus? Lazarus wasn't resurrected. He was resuscitated. Resurrected is to never die again. Lazarus was raised back to life, but he would die again. Okay, in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, but it could just as easily have written when the Feast of Weeks or when Shavuot had fully come. Means this is the ultimate fulfillment of that fourth of the appointed times of God from Leviticus 23 called the Feast of Weeks. When they fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Historically, this is when God came down upon Mount Sinai in fire with the Holy Spirit, with the winds blowing with shofar blasts and presented himself to the people and made a covenant with them. What we would call today perhaps the old covenant. Here comes God to confirm the new covenant. Verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. What's another word for wind? Spirit. spirit. Ruach in Hebrew is wind, breath, or spirit. 
and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. <coughs> there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them. They would have just been studying Exodus chapter 19 when God came down at Mount Sinai with wind and fire and earthquakes and trumpet blasts. So as they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Hmm. Each one of these is part of a pilgrim festival. Right? The Shlosh Regalim. That is that all Israel was required to be in Jerusalem when they took place. So when Messiah was crucified, where was all Israel? In Jerusalem to see it. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, where was all Israel? In Jerusalem to see it. That's significant. Go back to Leviticus 23. Verses 15 and 16. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, that's the Feast of First Fruits, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be counted. How many Sabbaths? Seven, seven Sabbaths. Now go to Acts chapter 20. Verses 6 and 7. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So what's just happened? Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Then they sail. And in five days joined them at Troas, where he stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. Do you see that? The Greek does not say no on the first day of the week. The Greek says now on one of the Sabbaths. One of what Sabbaths? What do you count between Passover and Pentecost? Seven Sabbaths. Now on one of the Sabbaths when the disciples came together to break bread. So it is not a Sunday morning church service as it's been portrayed. It's one of the Sabbaths between Passover and Shavuot or Pentecost. Um, I was asked recently if we could have a break halfway in between, so let's take a short break. All right, back on the record. Okay. We have finished the first four fingers. Hold them up again. Messiah died at Passover, was buried in leavened bread, rose at first fruits, the Holy Spirit came at the Feast of Weeks. We saw in Leviticus 23 that it's followed by the harvest period. That describes the church age of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The fall festivals now from Leviticus 23 teach, first of all, hold up the little finger here and wiggle it, the rapture and the resurrection. Followed by the next one, wiggle it, Messiah's second coming for Armageddon. 
And the third one is you wiggle it. The Feast of Tabernacles. So let's defer the verses that teach that Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah, as it's called in the Bible, teaches the rapture and resurrection till tomorrow. And let's go straight to Yom Kippur, number six, the Day of Atonement, and turn back to Matthew chapter 24. Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, in prophecy, teaches the day that Messiah sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and it cleaves in two. And he's here for the Battle of Armageddon of Revelation chapter 19, 11. <coughs> it's also described in Ezekiel 43 and Zechariah chapter 14, but we want to look at Matthew chapter 24 because we want to look at the timing of it. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 29. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. <clears throat> then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. That's Revelation 19.11. He comes on a white horse. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Instead of just telling you, let's go look. Turn first to Revelation chapter 19. We'll look at the event and then talk about how we know which festival prophesies its coming. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He sat and was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Give me a verse in Isaiah that tells us about Messiah's judgment, how it is, it is so faithful and true. 11, verse 4. Isaiah 11, verse 4, right? His eyes were like a flame of fire. What is fire picture in prophecy? Judgment. On his head were many crowns. He's the king of kings, lord of lords. But I get ahead of myself. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Please don't ask me what it was. I don't know. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. That's his talit. His prayer shawl. This is what they wrap around the man's head back in Messiah's day when he died. Messiah had profuse head wounds. They, they bled so much that his talit that was wrapped around his head at his burial would be stained with the blood he shed for us at Calvary. That's why it says he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. What verse does that point us back to? John 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the armies in heaven. That word armies is the Hebrew word hosts. We keep seeing the phrase in the, in the Old Testament, Adonai Zavaot, the Lord of hosts. That's the same word, the armies in heaven. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. These are the raptured and resurrected saints returning with Messiah. They follow them on white horses. If they return with Messiah at the feast of, well it's not really a feast, the day of atonement. 
That means they had to be with Messiah. So that's what the Feast of Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah teaches is the rapture resurrection, how we got to heaven to be able to return with Messiah. But that's tomorrow. Now to his mouth goes a sharp sword. What is that sharp sword? Anybody know? The word of God. That with it he should strike the nations. Wow, that's Isaiah 11, Psalm 2, Isaiah 63. Lots of verses support that verse. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fiercest and wrath of Almighty God. And he has an <coughs> on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men. You get the idea. But when does that happen? Back to Matthew 24. Verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Yeah, I have to show you Zechariah 12.10, don't I? Let's go back to Zechariah 12.10, when the tribes mourn, and why. And remember back to Daniel's teaching on the Aleph and the Tav, because you'll see one in this verse. In Zechariah 12, let's start in verse 8 for context to see when. In that day, what day? In the day of the Lord. Okay, so we're talking about in the tribulation period. The Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the one who is feeble among them in that day. What day? Day of the Lord shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. What do we call that battle? Armageddon. And I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, Olive Tav, whom they pierced. Yeah, they left the Olive Tav out of the translation, but it's there in the Hebrew. <laughs> Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Let's go back to Matthew 24. So Zechariah 12 said it takes place in that day, in the day of the Lord, but yeah, we need more than that. The more than that's in verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Great sound of a trumpet. There are three trumpets in the Bible that have a name. The first trump sounded in Exodus 19 for the betrothal of the bride to God. <clears throat> the last trump sounds, as we're going to find out tomorrow at the Feast of Trumpets, to signal the marriage of Messiah to the bride. And then the shofar Haggadol, the great trumpet, sounds on the Day of Atonement. It's part of the teaching from 3,500 years ago. So in verse 31 tells us it is at the Day of Atonement that Messiah comes down for the Battle of Armageddon. And what is the Day of Atonement all about? 
repentance or die, right? Repentance or die. That's what happens when Messiah returns. All those who refuse to repent, die. They will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The first four were completed in order, right? He died, he was buried, he was raised, the Holy Spirit came. So how do you suppose the fall three will be fulfilled? Exactly the same way, in order. So we have Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah that we'll discuss tomorrow. Followed by the Day of Atonement, which is how the rapture and resurrected saints are in heaven to return with Messiah. And then we have number seven, the Feast of Tabernacles, also called Sukkot or Booths. <coughs> which prophesies the day that Messiah establishes the Messianic Kingdom. This I really never knew until this week. Let's go back to Proverbs 7. I knew the day was going to happen. I didn't know it was spelled out so clearly in the Bible. <clears throat> Do you remember how Messiah taught in a parable that a man gave talents to his servants and then went away on a long journey and then returned to see how his servants had done? Proverbs 7 is a part of that same story. Let's go to verse 19. <clears throat> For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. Just like the parable that Messiah taught. He has taken a bag of money with him. That money is silver. Silver pictures redemption. He's taken the raptured and resurrected believers and he will come home on the appointed day. Do you see that? And when we studied, we said, what is that appointed day? Well, that's the Feast of Tabernacles. But I never realized that the Hebrew is more clear. The Hebrew says, Le'yom HaKesah. says, on the day of the full moon, is what it literally says. And right there in my Bible, it says, at the full moon. The publishers put that at the bottom because that's literally what it says. Which of the fall festivals take place at the full moon? There's only one. It's Tabernacles. Tabernacles is the 15th of the month. That's always the full moon. So, <clears throat> the fall festivals take place on the first day. That's the Feast of Trumpets. The 10th day, the Day of Atonement. And the 15th, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, when God establishes the Messianic Kingdom. So we know from Proverbs 7, 19 to 20, that Sukkot, or Tabernacles, is fulfilled when Messiah establishes the Kingdom on earth. We know from the Shofar Haggadol, the Great Trumpet, that Yom Kippur is the day that Messiah returns for Armageddon. And that leads for tomorrow, Rosh Hashanah, or Yom Teruah, which is the first day of the seventh month in his teaching of the rapture and the resurrection. In the meantime, let's go over to Psalm 27. 
Is everything done by the Orthodox Jewish community right? No. But does that mean that everything's wrong? The answer is no. We have to check everything against the Bible. Who taught us to do that? The Apostle Paul did. But the tradition at this time of year is to read Psalm 27 regularly. So let's take a look at Psalm 27 and see why it's a specific psalm for this particular time of year. Psalm 27, verse 1. It's a psalm of David. Who was David? He was the king of Israel. What else do we know? He was a prophet. How do we know? Acts 2 calls him a prophet. Messiah himself called him a prophet, right? Yeah. He's prophesying in the spirit. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. What's the Hebrew word Yeshua mean? Salvation. So is Messiah the light of the world? He is. Is he our salvation? He is. <clears throat> David says, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. In other words, he's the one who gives me life, including life eternal. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. What's the house of the Lord? That's the temple, the sanctuary, his dwelling place. All the days of my life. Does the phrase all the days of my life mean just in this world? No, but in the days to come as well. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble. What's the time of trouble another term for? The tribulation period. He shall hide me in his pavilion. That word pavilion refers to a sukkah. A tabernacle, a dwelling place. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. What's another term for the Feast of Trumpets? The day of the hiding or concealing. He shall set me high upon a rock. Who's our rock? That's Messiah, Yeshua. So do you see how dwelling in the presence of the Lord requires Messiah? Yes. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes I will sing praises to the Lord. Do you have a little note in your Bible that says joyous shouts? Those are teruahs. That's what the word teruah means. It's not just a trumpet blast, but also a joyful shout. So that's why this psalm is tied to the Feast of Trumpets. Yom Teruah, the day of the awakening trumpet blast that's accompanied with the shouts of praises. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. Who does God have mercy upon? 
Those who love him and keep his commandments. Give me a chapter. Let's go back to Exodus 20. Daniel's exactly right. Exodus 20, verse 6. But showing mercy to thousands, that's thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Hmm. Doesn't that read a lot like Revelation 14, 12? Keep a finger in Psalm 27. Let's go to Revelation 14, 12. Who are the saints? I've noticed people are really, really shocked when I say the Bible only uses the word Christian three times. And it's always by outsiders. Using it in a derogatory manner. The believers, 60 plus times, they refer to themselves as the saints. Revelation 14, 12 tells us the characteristics of the saints of the Lord. It says, here is the patience of the saints. That Greek word is hagios, it means the holy ones. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Why do I remind us that it's the holy ones, Hagios? Because the scripture says, without holiness, what? No one will see God. So there are going to be a lot of people who call themselves Christians that when the trumpet sounds, they will not go. And they're going to be here going, I don't understand. I've been a Christian all my life. I put up the most beautiful Christmas trees and paid the most beautiful Easter eggs, and here I am. What happened? Been there, done that. Been there, done that. Got the t-shirt, huh? Mm -hmm. Yep. So back to Psalm 27. Verse 8. When you said, seek my face, what's it mean, seek my face? You want to come into his presence. You want to do his will. You want to be his child. You want him to be your father. My heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Meaning what? Lord, if you ask it, it's my heart's desire to do it. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Why does he use the word servant there? Does God divide people into servants and enemies when it comes to judgment? Servant does the work of the master. What's another way to describe that? Does what the master commands. Exactly, exactly. So keep a finger here. Let's go to Isaiah 66. I wanted to be sure to put some of this in here at the end. In case we're not here tomorrow. In case the trumpet has sounded. And there are people left behind going, "Why? what did I do wrong? 
because <clears throat> let's look first at Isaiah 66 before I get preachy. Verses 14 to 17, to me, just lay it all out. This is what happens when the Lord returns. God put it right here for us to read. This is the second coming. When you see this, that is God comforting Jerusalem, fighting on her behalf, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. There you have the two categories. What does God show to his servants? His grace, his mercy, his blessings, and his enemies? His indignation. The Hebrew word is za'am. It's the wrath of God being poured out in the tribulation period. Does God pour out his wrath on his servants? No. Does he show his blessing to his enemies? No. So we need to make sure we know which camp we're in. <clears throat> For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind <clears throat> to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. What's fire in prophecy? Judgment. This is God's judgment being poured out. And for, verse 16 says, For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh. Is that Jew and Gentile alike? It is, all flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst. That's idolatry. Eating swine's flesh. That's eating pork, eating ham, eating bacon. And the mouse and the abomination, that's the shrimps, the lobsters, etc., shall be consumed together, says the Lord. What does God do to people who are breaking his commandments when the Lord returns? They die. And yet people read this and go, yeah, but Paul said I can eat pigs. No, he didn't. And God says when the Lord returns, those that are eating piggies and shrimps and lobsters and catfishes, etc., are going to be consumed together. Is that so they can get to heaven quicker? No, unfortunately it's not. So, let us talk for a moment. What if I'm left behind? The trumpet blew, and there weren't as many people taken as we thought. Give me a verse that says that's going to happen. Let's go to Matthew 7. Yeah. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14 are only talking about believers. Or people that call themselves believers. They think they're saved. Some are, some aren't. He's going to tell us why and how you can tell the difference. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. What's that word destruction mean? Like a fire, right? And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. They all thought they were on the road to heaven. And most, come judgment day, find out that they were on the wrong road. Why? The why is verse 15. Beware of false prophets, false teachers, false preachers. 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Verses 21 to 23, get down and explain it a little more. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Haven't you heard that? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But they don't understand what that means. He says, many will say to me in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? These are their proofs that they truly were saved. Verse 23, and then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. Anomia. That which is contrary to God's commandments. So most of the church today teaches that you don't need to repent. You don't need to stop sinning. You simply walk down the aisle, say you believe in Jesus, and let the pastor dunk you in the baptismal, and now you're saved. Once saved, always saved. You can go live any way you like. But what does the Bible say? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Go to the book of Luke. Yep, insert any man-made doctrine. You're absolutely right. It'll read the same way. Lord, Lord, did we not insert man-made doctrine? Yep. It'll read the same way. It'll read the same way. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? You know, I talk to Protestant pastors who say, well, of course. This isn't written to the Gentiles. This is only to the Jewish people. Go to 1 Corinthians, which was written by the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles. So what about the Great Commission? It said, take my word and take it to the nations. Yeah. We may have to look at that in a minute. But 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. Verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Paul said it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. What matters is do you keep God's commandments? Now Daniel said, yeah, yeah, read Matthew chapter 28. What did God tell the apostles? to do. Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Verse 18. And Yeshua came and spoke to them saying. What does that word say mean? It's a quote. These are the very words out of Messiah's lips. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. What's a disciple? A student. Of all the nations. The word nations means Gentiles. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice name is singular. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Teaching the Gentiles to observe all things that God has commanded us. 
Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Yep, the NIV takes that out. Wonder why. One of many things they take out. So how do we know whether the Lord really meant this or not? Who wrote books after all the other apostles were dead? John did. So let's look at 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5. I know you guys know all this, but there are going to be people left behind going, I don't understand. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I don't know how many of you have the same experience as I do but I get rebuked four or five times a week usually that we're not supposed to keep commandments. You've got to break commandments to make God happy. Is that what my Bible says? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Let's go to Revelation 22 and read the Lord's own words. I like red words. I really do. Revelation 22 verses 12 to 14, maybe even 15 depending upon the clock. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his what? Work. That Greek word is ergon. What does it mean? The things that you did. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. In Hebrew, that's I am the Aleph and the Tav, if you're wondering what I meant by the Aleph and the Tav in Zechariah 12.10. The beginning and the end, the first and the <coughs> following. No, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. My Baptist commentary says, that ain't right. No, no, no. That means salvation by works. No, it doesn't. If you love the Lord, he said, you what? If you love me, keep my commandments. Salvation is by faith. You can only be saved by faith. But if you're saved by faith, what is the test? that you are saved by faith. Whether you keep his commandments or not. Does the Bible really say that? It does. Look at John 17, 3 first. John 17, 3. But you know, Wayne, when you understand the purpose of the commandments and how they're not that, that helps you make more sense to Scripture. Like the Scriptures are so more well tied together. Yeah. Rather than having to make up doctrine to fill in gaps. Yeah. There are certain cornerstones that when you learn, the Bible just comes together. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. To know God and Messiah, who is God, is to have eternal life. And in 1 John chapter 2, 
God gives us a test. If you want to know, do you have eternal life or not? He put a test in here. In many New King James Bibles, it even says the test of knowing him right over it. That's 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He says, I know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. In other words, if you do not keep God's commandments, if you're walking in lawlessness, you're not saved. And that's what Messiah himself said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. And if you think you're saved and you don't keep his commandments, the Bible says you are mistaken. And the fact that most churches teach that we're not supposed to keep commandments is not an excuse. Jeremiah 16 says that they're going to come to God on judgment day and say, but our fathers taught us wrong. And unfortunately, that's not an excuse. But our time is up. So let us go to the Lord in prayer. And tomorrow, we will deal with point number five on our Eschatology 101. So be sure and bring it with you. That is the Feast of Yom Teruah.